Good morning. Good to see all of you. When I was about 12 years old, my mother looked at me and without, I'm sure, love in her heart, but without any kindness in her voice, <laughs> said, son, please learn to make a living talking because if you have to work with your hands, you'll starve. She was right. So that set my course on one of the many things you can do in life by merely talking to people. Uh, that sent me to law school in Mexico for a short time where I grew up, and then God did all kinds of things, some of them very painful, I'll tell you that story another time, to redirect me to the life and the work I enjoy now, which is pastoring and opening the Bible Sunday after Sunday. and reading it with you, reading especially the words and the life of Christ and showing you with His help how they apply and what, they, what difference they should make to us. We're in Luke chapter 4. As a church, we're going through the Bible, book at a time, not in consecutive order. We took about a year to cover the Bible's stories, and then we went through Philippians and Colossians, two letters that Paul wrote. Now we're in the Gospel of Luke, and Luke is quickly becoming my favorite gospel. Luke chapter 4, please. Here you're going to see Jesus do some public speaking. I took my mother's advice, and it eventually, it wasn't my plan, it actually wasn't even my desire, but it eventually led to this joy I enjoy with you right now to open the Bible with you. And Jesus is going to speak in public, and something extraordinary is going to happen in the synagogue, the little congregation where He's preaching. And that happens when you're a public speaker. I've been speaking in public to church groups or some kind of group for over 20 years, and I've literally seen just about everything you could imagine. I've had people talk back shout me down, walk out. I had a lady breastfeed in front of me, about two feet in front of me when I was a college student, which gave me an intense interest in talking exclusively to the back row because I didn't know what to do with that. <laughs> I've had people faint, shout me down, give me notes before I could walk down the steps. I mean, you see it all when you dare to speak in public. Many of you do, and you know exactly just how unpredictable it can be. Never in my life, thankfully, have I had a day like Jesus had in Luke chapter 4 as He's preaching in the synagogue. Look with me, please. Luke chapter 4. And we've come now to verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. In other words, he's in the synagogue doing what he's been doing, what he did every Saturday. He went to worship, and on this day, he's also teaching. He was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. In other words, you would have wanted to be there. I've also astonished people with speaking, but usually by ways I did not necessarily intend. In Amarillo, Texas, I once fell off the platform backwards. That's another story and quite a trick, but I managed. 
Jesus was entirely different. I look forward someday to hearing him open up the Scriptures as the Gospel of Luke says he does time after time and literally explain himself. And the hallmark of his teaching is he is teaching, Luke says, with authority. What's the crowd's reaction? Astonishment. You know, that's hard to come by in something that you do every week. If there's anything in your life that you do on a regular basis, and there's no doubt about it, you're going to be there. It gets hard after a while to be astonished by any of it. These people in Capernaum have been coming to synagogue. Probably they've been carried in from the time they were children. They've been going to Capernaum's a, not an unimportant town. It's a center of fishing and agriculture. It's kind of the breadbasket, really, of Israel. These are just common, everyday folk, what the elites in our country would pejoratively call flyover country. And they went to a synagogue on an ordinary Sabbath, but they met an extraordinary man, and he is teaching with authority. Another gospel writer talks about this very thing, and he even draws the distinction, not like their regular teachers. There was something different about Jesus. I've pondered what it was about his teaching that was so authoritative, and I think the central fact is he's reading a book of history about himself. And as you saw earlier in this chapter, he's saying to them, these things that were written 700 or 1,000 years earlier, they're talking about me. See, in Jesus' day, rabbinical teaching consisted of reading all the learned opinions of all the scholars and every commentary they had made, kind of made a list of different perspectives or different views. It was very dry, it had to be very academic, very dusty, and these common folks sat in the pew, most Sabbaths probably just enduring, knowing that it was good for them, knowing that they should be there, knowing that this was the very Word of God, but having no life in it. Have you been there? Hopefully not too many times here, but we've all been there. As a friend of mine in seminary said regarding one of our professors, he's killing the book of Acts. <laughs> and that's a tragedy because that's a really exciting book. Not with Jesus. Those of you who are teachers, Jesus never had a single bad teaching day in His entire life. He mesmerized, captivated, and called for a reaction, sometimes very positive and worshipful, other times, as we saw last week, literally murderous. But they were amazed. They were astonished at His teaching. And that's when the distraction started. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice saying, Ha! What, have you have, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now put yourself in that synagogue. How are you reacting? He was a regular too. And nobody knew that Moshe was demon-possessed. I'm making his name up, but <laughs> he's just one of them. Nothing in the story leads me to think that he burst in. Maybe he did, I'm not entirely sure, but this looks like an ordinary day with an extraordinary teacher and a just as extraordinary interruption. 
and a demon-possessed man, a man filled with an unclean spirit, because demons are real. And as you read Luke's passage here this morning with me, you're going to see that these first century people lived long ago, but they weren't foolish or stupid. They distinguish very clearly between disease and demon possession. The modern mind, which has no room for the supernatural, puts all such occurrences in the realm of a mental health issue. The Bible does not. Those are two very real events. They both occur and destroy people in, the day, in their day-to-day experience, but they are different. And Luke says there is no doubt this person has the spirit of an unclean demon, and he is shouting Jesus down. Now, is he saying anything wrong? No, he knows exactly who he is. That's not surprising. We've seen in these brief four chapters, we've seen the devil already intervene directly in the life of Jesus and try to tempt him away from the mission he received from God. Jesus will have nothing to do with it. I think this is a distraction. He says something exactly right, but he said it in a way that had to terrify everybody, everybody but Jesus. Look in verse 35. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. See, in the ancient world, exorcisms were not uncommon. If you read outside of our tiny little Western bubble, you'll hear from reliable missionaries, some of the medical doctors who have encountered the demonic far from America, and some who have encountered it right here. In the ancient world, the attempted exorcisms involved rituals and long words and incantations and saying just the right thing. Here again is authority. What did Jesus say? Put it in your own words. Shut up and get out. Not the norm. Shut up and get out. And there's one more display of force. When the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. Wow, I love the details. When you're reading the Gospels, when you're reading the stories of the Bible, slow down and look at the details. This is pure intimidation, this personality, this evil spirit, and it shouldn't surprise you that such exist. After all, you have a spirit. You are a spirit with a body. This is a disembodied spirit with mind, will, emotions, plans, and above all, in this story, an adversarial view of of Jesus, who wants to distract him, who evidently wants to do harm to this man. He makes one final show of force. What does he do to the man? He throws him down. What's the result? No harm done. He gets up in his right mind. Now, again, If you're going to understand the stories of the Bible, remember they were intended to be read. The Gospel of Luke would have been copied by hand and passed from Christian to Christian in the first century. What would the first reader's response have been to all this? If you'd never read this before, if you didn't know that this ever happened, how would you react? Wow. Wish I could have been there in a safe pew, right, away from… Don't want to be right next to the action. Their reaction is as normal, as predictable as ours would have been. 
And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power He commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about Him went out into every place in the surrounding region. First, He taught with authority, and they marveled at His personal authority in explaining to them what God had said centuries earlier. We're not told the sermon this time, but I'm quite sure it was like the one in Nazareth this Scripture is telling you about me. And a heinous, frightening, traumatic, I assure you, somebody went home and had nightmares about it that night. Interruption of a man shrieking with a voice not his own, challenging Jesus and saying exactly who he is, and with the calm of a grown man in charge of something that isn't particularly that difficult, Jesus just says, shut up and get out. And the, man, and the man is convulsed and thrown to the ground once more, and he gets up having received no harm. He's whole. He's himself again. His wife and children recognize him. And the people say, what, what kind of teacher, what kind of word is this? He was opening the Scriptures with authority. Now he's commanding demons with authority. No one has ever seen anything like this. Verse 38, he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. And it's reasonably sure that they found this very place in Israel. Some of you have been there with us. It's a little one-story house not far from where fishing would have taken place. It's a modest little place not far from a synagogue, actually. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was, was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever. And it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Are you seeing the magnitude of what I just read? You remember the last time you had a fever? Remember struggling with it? And if you're anything like me, waking up in a cold sweat, fearing that your wife's going to be really upset because now everything's a mess, everything will have to be washed, you feel miserable. And if you're experienced this whatever this was, season where we were all knocked down for a little while, you probably said something like this, I think I'm over it, but I'm not going to push it. What'd she do? She got up and did what? She served lunch. There's nothing like this. How did Jesus heal it? He spoke to the fever this time. What's the point? He's in charge of everything. The Word of God, demon-possessed men, and the diseases that afflict ordinary people and lay them down in bed when they would have rather have been at the synagogue and certainly preparing a meal for their family after it was over. She got up and served them, and understandably, reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. There's nobody like Jesus. This is what Luke is trying to show you. There is no one like Jesus. He stands alone. In human history, He stands alone. In one afternoon, He has dealt with all the frailties of the human condition. 
He has opened up the Word of God that verifiably speaks of Him centuries earlier and explained to them certainly that He is the one. This was no dry reading. It was the kind of teaching and the kind of pronouncement that made them astonished and made them say, we've never been taught like this. No one has ever come to our synagogue and said anything like this. In the middle of that, He was interrupted by one of the most terrifying things that anyone could ever experience. I personally believe I've only encountered it once, and it was mild, and I went home with my hands on the steering wheel of the car shaking. And Jesus said, shut up, get out. And when he went home to eat, and his hostess was sick, so he walked over to her, rebuked the high raging fever that had laid her down, and she popped up and started serving them food. Nobody recovers from a fever like that. I mean, I'm, I'm a man, so I milk it if I'm the slightest bit sick, you know. <laughs> Get sick on a Monday, I'll milk it for favors and bring me cold drinks at least until Thursday. <laughs> Don't look at your husbands that way, ladies. That's not… that will only increase my counseling load uh, when you make it that personal. But this is just authority on pure pure, untapped display, unchallenged. He's in charge of everything. There's absolutely no one like Jesus. This is why C.S. Lewis, the great English professor who was once a skeptic and had no room for God in his life, was eventually persuaded and converted and became a Christian. He wrote this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept His claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. That's Jesus. That's the word that's going around. There is absolutely no one like Him. And then we're told, now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to Him, and He laid His hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many. There's the difference between disease and demon possession. Every sick person, He laid His hands on every one of them and healed them, and demons also came out of many, saying, you are the Son of God, but He rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that He was the Christ. And He won't be pressured, He won't be put on their timetable, and since they're foul and contemptible, He won't even accept their testimony because they're telling the truth now, they may lie later. What's Luke trying to show you? This, there's no one like Jesus. He's in complete control. Can I give you some good news? If you trust Him, He's in charge. See, we receive that so many times as bad news, and it's not. 
the one who commands the Word of God and teaches it in a way to make ordinary, hardworking people astonished, that brings the guy who sleeps on the back row out of his slumber and makes his jaw hang low with astonishment at the way the Word of God is taught, he's in charge of you. He commands demons and disease, everything that afflicts the human condition, every single thing that sin has ruined, Jesus has complete mastery over. I can't think of better news to tell you this morning. We're in a frail state, every single one of us, at every level. Nationally, here in our city, in our families, in our marriages, and in our friendships, and in our own physical day-to-day experience and health, we are far more fragile than we realize. Jesus is not the slightest bit fragile. He's in charge, and there's absolutely no one like Him. And if you'll humble yourself and call Him Master and Lord, as Lewis did, if you say, Jesus, my whole life has been ruined by my sin and my selfishness, but I'm done with it. Please come and save me. The one who controls everything will also take control of you. And you know why people don't come to Jesus? We like to be in charge. We'll see this unique person in history doing things that no one ever had, ever could, or ever will again and say, I'll drive. Think about that. The madness of the bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot. If God consents to get in the car, give Him the keys. Jesus will struggle with His own disciples. You'll see all through the Gospel of Luke trying to show them this simple truth. There is absolutely no one like Him. Now, what would you expect the reaction of the crowd where He's living and working for a few days to be? What would you expect them to do the next day? Find Him, right? It's exactly what they did. When it was day… The next morning, in other words, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. Yeah, sure, absolutely. There's nothing ruining our lives that this man can't handle, and he does so with no effort. He just speaks, and it's done. He speaks over our Scriptures. He speaks over demons. He speaks over disease. Anyone you bring Him, anything that's wrong with them, He will go to them individually, place His hands on them, and they will be healed and whole. No one can do that. We get sick. We start dreading the insurance situation and getting a referral, and when can you see me? And will you be any good, or do I need to find somebody else? There's absolutely no one like Jesus, so understandably, the next day, they come to Him and want Him back. But He said to them, don't miss this, church, this is the point of the story. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And He was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. What's the point? This, I think. Good works must always come with the gospel, but they can never replace it. Christians have been ambivalent about good works and their relationship with the gospel. Jesus never was. 
Understand, when Jesus is dealing with sick people and demon-possessed people, He is actually healing them. He's not doing what some wits on internet have called slacktivism. Are you familiar? Slacktivism is putting the right hashtag on your social media post to show that you have solidarity with some great cause. You know what you have to do after that? Nothing. That's why they call it slacktivism. In more academic circles, they call it virtue signaling, where you see a virtue and you just signal it. You just put it out there. You put a signal up, I'm one of the good guys. I stand against oppression wherever it may lurk. Well, good. I mean, relatively few, thankfully, are in favor of oppression, right? Jesus wasn't a slacktivist and a virtue signaler. He was actually doing good works in such a powerful, palpable way from God Himself, as God Himself on earth, the very Son of God, who even the demons recognize, that sick people went home healed. And a man who had injured his back three years earlier and couldn't work because he couldn't do hard labor in that little town got back to work and felt better than he had in years. And the people understandably wanted Jesus to stick around, and he said, I can't. I won't. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. What is that? The good news that God rules. The good news that God is now at work extending His rule over every single thing that sin has broken, beginning with the core of the problem, which is the human heart. As you watch the news, please remember most of the evil that you will see on your TV screens is very occasionally natural evil, like the earthquake in Christchurch. Most of the things that make you crazy and make you turn the TV off and make you sad or angry or whatever reaction it has to you is not natural evil occurring in the world. It's moral evil perpetrated by human beings like yourself, like me. Jesus said, I'm here to proclaim the rule of God, the good news of the kingdom of God everywhere. So he went to it. What was he telling them? Good works must always go with the gospel. Yes, absolutely. And they're real good works. They're not signals. They're not stances. They actually make a difference. But Jesus refused to simply be a good works machine. What He was there was to tell people the gospel. And at the very end of Luke, Luke reminds us what that's about. Hold your place, please, and look at the very end of the book, Luke chapter 24. Here was the heart of Jesus preaching. Look in verse 44 with me. Jesus is with some of His disciples that even now after His resurrection don't get it, so He explains it. My goodness, Jesus was a great teacher. Great teachers, when they have students who don't get it, don't simply move on in contempt. They go back and explain it and teach it a different way until the light comes on. Then he said to them, Luke 24, 44, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's the entire Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. 
He's in charge of the disciples and the Scriptures and their understanding. Watch this. And He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. What is Jesus announcing? The forgiveness of sins has arrived because the Son of God is on earth. The kingdom of God is being extended and offered to wayward, willful, self-willed people because the King is on earth offering good news. And for all of His good deeds and for all of His good works, Jesus simply will not allow the gospel to be pushed out, which is a severe temptation in our time. Knowing that the announcement of Jesus is often met with indifference at the best, sometimes with hostility, the temptation of the disciple is to busy himself with good works and leave the name and the claims of Jesus out of it altogether, and Jesus wouldn't. And he knew exactly what it would lead to. I mean, I'm just speculating here, but if Jesus had only confined himself to casting out demons and healing disease, nobody would ever have had a trouble with that, right? Where did the trouble come in? When he kept telling them, I'm the Son of God, believe in me or die in your sins. That's in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Well, wait a second. We like the doctor and the exorcist. We don't like this one bit. Oh, you want to be in charge? You've shown us that you are, but you actually want to be in charge. You want us to be your disciples. You want us to call you Lord and Savior. Mm -mm. And Jesus won't have it, even though it sets him on a collision course with the cross. That's why he wouldn't have it. He was determined to go to the cross for your sake and for mine. I'm telling you, there's no one like him. What are modern-day disciples to do? He's no longer here. We await his return. Well, good news is, he told us. Are you aware that he told us? Look in the Gospel of Matthew, please, or you can simply look up on this screen. This is what Jesus said to his disciples. Read it with me. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You're supposed to be doing good works too. I'm supposed to be doing good works. I don't have miraculous faculties, but I am to be doing good works, just as Jesus did, that meet people where they are with the needs they really have, not as I wish them to be or dealing with needs I wish they had instead. I am to be doing good works, Jesus says, but look at the point. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and say you're amazing. Is that, is that, is that the idea? Let them see your good works that you may gain political favor. No? Let them see your good works and measurably improve life on earth. Is that what he said? Is that a good thing? Of course. It's what Jesus was doing. 
The sick, the diseased, the demon-possessed, their life improved in a marked fashion when they went home after meeting Him. But the point was this, that they may see His good works and our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. That's the point of good works. So we have to walk with balance. If we merely do good works and leave Christ out of it, we are not Christians at all. If we merely proclaim Christ and do not do the good works that He did and that He commanded us to do, we're leaving half half of what He told us here in Matthew chapter 5. Why? Because good works always go with the gospel. Don't miss that. Paul explained it to the Philippians slightly differently. He said that they should shine as lights, as the innocent children of God, to show forth their innocence as the innocent children of God in the middle of a crooked and twisted generation. Everywhere you look across Scripture, once you see it, you see this imperative. I have no choice if I'm truly a Christian but to be doing good works. But the point is not my virtue. It's not my reputation. It's not to make my cause advance a little bit further. The point is always naming Christ so that eventually hearts softened and life changed and people impressed and awed by those good works would not stop at us. They would look further and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. So what kind of good works are you doing? And where are you proclaiming the good news of the good rule of God that came to save and restore everything that sin had broken? In the days to come, I hope that as we deepen in our discipleship, and I'm thrilled by what's happening at Crosspoint, so many of us, including me, are involved in one-in-one discipleship, receiving good instruction on how to get close to Jesus and follow Him. And our ministry teams absolutely thrill me. There are people who get to this campus in the dark even before I do. They came here to serve you. They came here to do good works. Here's the point, so that you would glorify their Father who is in heaven. So in coming days, I hope that more and more we'll be obeying what Jesus told us to do here. And if you can't actively point to good works that you're doing in your life that would help people and bless them and make them turn from you to your Father who is in heaven, I pray that God would speak to you about that. And that on Jesus' timing, not mine, not because we're trying to run a program, on Jesus' timing, you would get involved and you would get invested because life is fragile and eternity is forever. And if you don't know Jesus at all, if you just came here because you didn't want to have an argument with your family about it one more time, and you're dearly wishing I'd be quiet, hear this. Jesus loved you so much, He came on earth to enter into your experience to suffer every temptation just as you have. But here's the difference between Jesus and you. He didn't succumb to one of those temptations. He never disobeyed His Father in heaven one time. And the purpose of all that innocence and righteousness and goodness and true, genuine, life-changing virtue was to take it all to the cross to die in your place for your sins and mine so that we could call God our Father and never have to face Him as our judge. 
If you don't know Jesus, I pray that as I close this little time that I've enjoyed with you, that you would stop paying attention to me a little bit and turn to God and say, God, I'm sorry for my sins. I want Jesus as my Savior. Please save me. I get it. I don't understand all of it, but I understand this much. I've sinned, and I'm separated from you, and I don't want to be. Please give me Jesus instead and save me. Can we pray on those lines? Let's pray right now. Lord Jesus, I pray that right now you would speak to hearts who are a little indifferent towards you. You're real. You're as real this morning as you were that day in Capernaum. I pray that you would personally speak to them and make them turn away from their self-reliance and turn to you and call you Savior. I pray for the many of us here, Lord, certainly the majority who already know you and are doing our best to follow you. Help us not to discount the place of good works. Help us to do them, to live clean, righteous, compassionate lives as you did so that people would turn from us and have no choice but to look at you, Father, who are behind it all, that they would say, nobody could love me this way just on their own efforts. They must, there must be something bigger. It must be God working in them. you take a moment and just talk to the Lord about your own situation? If you need Him as Savior, would you tell Him so right now? And before you leave, I would love for you to find that card in your bulletin and fill it out, letting us know that you've done so. Would like to send you a Bible if you need it and some things that will help you grow if you already have one. Would like to pray for you as well. And Christians, where are those good works shining? If you had an audit this morning, a good works audit, what would you point to? Where are the good works that make people turn from you and give glory to God? If you're not sure, talk to God about it. Ask Him to lead you. He will. He wants you to do this. He doesn't play hard to get. He'll tell you what to do. If you're right in the thick of it and it's getting a little discouraging because people are mean, tell Him about it. Ask Him to bear your burden. Ask Him to give you His strength. The point of it all, those who are just getting started and those who are on the verge of getting weary and well-doing, the point of it all is to make people turn and give glory to God in heaven. Lord, make it so. Change this church from the inside out. You're doing good work here, Lord. We're not who we once were. We're not nearly who we should be, but we praise You because You've done good things. And we're not who we once were. You've done great things here. Do more, Lord, not for our sake, but for the sake of the people who need you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.